לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. It takes us into the, the next story. We're in the next generation. Isaac, Ele, Toldot, Yitzchak, Ben Avraham, Avraham, Olirat, Yitzchak. And if we had a lot of time, we'd talk about that first pasuk, but we are going to just say something that this Parsha, different from last week's Parsha. Last week, it's a novella. It's marriage. It's romance. This week, it's, it's, it, we're right into it. It's tough. The opening scene, and I'll get Barry and Jeremy to comment on this. We have Yitzchak ben Arba'im Shana, he's 40 years old, when he marries, and then it gets really hard. This is difficult. She is not able to have children. He entreats God on behalf of his wife, Ki Akarahi, because she... May not conceive. So, Jeremy, pick it up from there. What's going to happen in, in, in that moment or in the moments afterwards? And maybe take us into this relationship too and what's going on. Well, I don't know about the relationship exactly, but this is a, this is a, a wonderful you know, pattern. Another example of our biblical matriarchs, the, the long desire for a beloved child it delayed terribly, you know, long by infertility. Sarah was infertile for 10 years in the land. Obviously a long time before that, but 10 years in the land. Rivka, now 20 years, it's been 20 years. Uh, she's really had this tr- tremendous struggle, but God accedes to Yitzhak's prayer. She becomes pregnant. Presumably Yitzhak does his part too. And then she's having a terribly difficult, difficult pregnancy and the twins are struggling within her womb the symbol of Jacob and Esau being these two, two brothers, not just that they're biological, biologically connected, but they represent two different sorts of archetypes. Esau as a person of the field, he's wild, he's, he's extremely physical. Yaakov, Ishtam Yoshev Halim, he's a gentle person, he dwells in tents. Because the whole history of Jewish masculinity is writ in these verses, you know, that this sort of fear of, desire to be, the comparison with Esau, with all of his physical mightiness and the the intellectual or gentle or spiritual quality of, of Yaakov. But it's not just that the two fetuses are struggling within her. It seems like the two sorts of ways of being are struggling within her. And she says, why do I even live? This is what I wanted. This is what I prayed for. This is, this is everything that I, I thought I should be as as a woman in, the, in an ancient society, it's all about having children. This stinks. This is terrible. Why am I going on living? It's hard not to feel the feel. I mean, feel that intensity, that pain for her. Vayitro is the word uh, 
that you used, Vayitro Tzatzu, uh, and, and I was looking at the Everett Fox translation, he says, they're literally crushing up against each other. It's hard not to hear, feel like the sandpaper, the crushing uh, of, of the two uh, embryos, the two fetuses inside her. And Barry, the, just tell us, remind us that beautiful Midrash of the, the boys inside the womb. So the rabbis are perplexed by the word Vayerotzesu, and one of the understandings is that it's from the roots, la roots, to run. And every time Rebecca, who apparently lived in the ancient Israel a little bit different in my imagination than in the rabbis, every time she would pass a place of pagan worship, Esau would struggle, would run to get out of the womb. And every time she passed a yeshiva, Yaakov Avinu would struggle to get out of the womb. And so we have within her womb to an existential conflict, the conflict of existence. And what I think is important to keep in mind is that the prophecy or the oracle is quite clear. The younger shall serve the older. But no, when, well, it depends on how you read it, I guess. Right? <laughs> Not so clear then. The love, Yavotzair, which means the elder serves the younger, but it could also mean the Rav punctuation is Rav Yavotzair, right? I mean, that's what the says. Well, that's the Trump, right? So the later tradition, obviously. But what's interesting to me, though, is that despite the oracle, and I accept your uh, your criticism, it should be clear, right? That's why you go to an oracle is for clarity, not for um, cloudiness. the The situation in the womb is not yet set. Because one would think that actually Jacob should be born first. Interesting. So, so let, let, I want to go into this for a second. You know, describe a, a pregnancy. The, the a woman in pregnancy starts to feel the the movement. You know, in in real in real in a real sense at about twenty weeks or maybe before, and and she gets this oracle around that time midway through the pregnancy. She has to live. For the balance of her pregnancy, which would be about another 16, 20 weeks, whatever, she's going to go 36 weeks, um, with the knowledge of what's going on inside her. I think that's a that's a that's an enormous burden to I mean, in addition to the pregnancy, it's an enormous burden to have psychologically that something is happening inside you and you have no control over it. Uh, is that something you react to or something? Well, the question is if she how do we think she actually internalizes the oracle? Meaning she's told that there are two conflicting nations within her womb, and she does not yet know with which one she will identify. Okay, which brings us, it's, it's very interesting. So then we'll go right away to the the term, she reaches the term, yeah, the narrator tells us she has twins, duh. The first one comes out, admoni, which you have the root Adam, Adom, red, ruddy, you know, kind of coarse. Kulo ke'aderet se'ar, like he's wearing a mantle of fur, okay? Vayikru'u shemo esav, we'll talk about it in a second. So she sees the first one come out, like like deformed almost. It's, it's scary. You know, I don't know if she attended many births before, but presumably she, she thinks that, you know, she, she's going to be startled by this apparition. And so maybe at the immediate moment that she sees the child, the moment that she's going to be, you know, exultant, she's horrified. 
you know, and maybe that's the oracle that she, she's associating that with the oracle. And then, of course, a, a second later, in the, in the next very moment, his brother came out, his hand was holding on to the ankle of Esav, and he called him, his name Yaakov, presumably it's Yitzchak, and, and we learn that Yitzchak is 60 years old. So with the little facts that we have here, we have 20 years between the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah till the birth of the boys, which means that the, the barren, uh, the period of her inability to conceive was 20 years, or their inability to have children was 20 years, a long time, that when in fact she is pregnant, it's a horrible pregnancy, she's exasperated, and when the birth happens, it's like, oh my God, this is overwhelming. And, and one little point here, which is, and we'll go to this with Esav. Esav is, is there's something it, that is not normal here. And immediately the text hints to that by saying, Vayikru Shemo Esav, they called him Esav. And, and the picture that I'm presenting here, and I'd like to react to it, is that, so in the birthing chamber, I'm assuming that there's a midwife, I'm assuming that there's a nurse, I'm assuming that there may be a couple of other people. I don't know if Isaac's in there also, but, but there are people helping her as she's giving birth, and they see that the child is ruddy and, and kind of different. And they name him Esav, which is unusual. And his unusual nature, his unusual physical nature, contributes to the othering of him throughout his life. So I want to draw your attention to two things. The first one is the curiosity of the verse. Like you say how we show an admoni, which will generate the name Edom. Kuoka deret se'ar, which will generate the name se'ir. But which doesn't make any sense. So that's point number one. But if you pay attention to the next verse, his brother comes out next, and he's holding the heel of Esau, suggests that Esau names him Yaakov. And this is picked up later in the story when Esau will tell Isaac that he is grabbed my heel twice, is supplanted me twice. So, so it seems to me, at least, that one can make the inference that, in fact, Yaakov was the name that Aesop gave his brother, not Isaac. Or well, maybe... A little baby, though, you know. Yeah, a little baby. No, maybe... Look... I like the big maybe. Yeah, really. They, they, they grow up with these names somehow... And the names stick. The names, you know, Kishmo Hukainu, basically, as is his name, so is he. And and um, you know that there is a certain cruelty that happens when you when you uh, when a person is named something or a person gets a nickname, and the nickname is derogative and stays with the person throughout their entire life. But even when it's just a childish nickname, it could stay with them their whole life. So I it think... doesn't necessarily have to be derogatory. Okay. But what's interesting is. If we go with my idea, which, let's face it, I always like to do, then, you know, Yaakov is Esau's kid name for his brother. And then his real name is actually Yisrael, as the angel will anoint him in two weeks. Well, so that, I, that's pretty important because 
because there's, you know, this, there's a quality of the Bible, which is really, it's so wonderfully intertextual with multiple stories talking to each other, multiple passages talking to the, each other. And one thing that if you study, you know, rabbinic commentary, they are so fabulously sensitive. If we're lucky, you know, if we're lucky, we sort of know the parts of the Bible that we read in synagogue and much less the other ones. But in, in the book of Jeremiah, um, in, in which is the Haftar, I think, on Tisha B'Av, or one of the, one of the uh, Rosh Hashanah, right? Isn't the one about? Uh, uh, I got, I'm I'm lost in this real quick, but I, th- I think it's it's one of the summer morning days, whether it's seventeen to Tammuz or Tisha B'Av or or whatever. Kikol Ach Akov Yaakov, the Kolrea Yachil Rachil Yaloch. Every brother Akov Yaakov. Um, uh, Jeremiah says Akov Halev. Uh, the heart is twisted and the akov is twisted and then he goes on to say every brother twists indeed his uh, so Jacob is a twister he's a perverse kind of character we love him he is certainly from the anyone who's reading the bible knows that we are on the side of Jacob and not on the side of Esau he's our guy Esau is as, as Elliot said othered but the Bible's own judgment about Yaakov is that he's a twisty, sneaky, trip, you know, he trips people up, he trips his brother up. And poor Esau, who, though Jewish tradition is like super hard on poor Esau, I think the Bible is actually quite sympathetic to him getting the runaround quite a bit. And that that, that line of that every brother Yaakov's his other brother, you know, it is a judgment about the victimization that's going to happen to to Esau at Yaakov's hands. All right, so let's talk about their characters. And and in characteristic form, the the Torah really compresses their whole young lives. Vayigdalu hanearim, they grow up. Vayhi Esav ish yodeyatzayid. Esav was a person who yodeyatzayid, knew the hunt, ish sadeh, a man of the field. Vyaakov ish tam yoshev olim. And Yaakov was... Ishtam, and we'll have to translate Tom, it may not be the Tom of the Haggadah, simple, it probably means something more like whole, or wholehearted, or or plain, or soft, Yoshev Ohalim, he dwells in tents. So I, I was, before we were, we were we were recording, we talked about a theory that I have, which is that, that Esau, who is othered from birth, really, tries to cast his lineage his understanding of himself in the parallel line, not in the Abraham line that comes all the way from Shem, but in the line that comes from Ham. And the line that comes from Ham includes the only other figure in the Torah who, and in the Bible who is actually identified as a hunter, and that is Nimrod. Nimrod is a gibor. A, 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 a strong man, he's a king, he's, and he's a gibor tzayid. And so here is the boy who, you know, having emerged ruddy, red, furry from his mother and, is, and sees himself from the youngest of ages, as all children do, is differentiated from everybody else, is ostracized probably, is probably teased, and he has the legend of Nimrod somewhere circulating around him, and that's what he wants to be. He wants to grow up to be a Nimrod. And it almost is as if he develops this talent, and then people say what people say about Nimrod, which was a common 
statement about Nimrod that, you know, Nimrod is a great hero. Nimrod is the great strongman. It's almost like saying, right, you grow up and you have talent in hockey and you say, ah, a little Gretzky. He's a little Gretzky. He grows up to be a Gretzky. And so I think that Aesop was probably, you know, inoculated with this idea that A, you're different, and B, you you are trying to identify yourself with a heroic archetype, and then you become that. And I don't know, you know, I don't know, um, I cannot imagine what uh, ancient people thought about, you know, human anthropology, right? Like, we happen to know that like ancient, 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 pre, you know, pre prehistorical humans were hunters. They were hunter-gatherers. Yes. And and then we became agricultural people and we settled in towns and then developed them into cities and we developed the complex societies and, and, and economies that we have. It's it's almost, you know, in the way that you just said, I which I with which I agree, that Asav is portrayed here as like that kind of, and this is a modern term that, that of course the Bible would never use, but this is man in the state of nature, right? Um, he's he's part of that world. He goes out and catches antelopes. He comes back with this yummy gazelle to eat. And Yaakov is a city boy. He's a city mouse. He doesn't know how to do any of that stuff. And Esau is portrayed as belonging in that outside world. And when, when Yitzhak smells him and says, you know, my son smells like the fresh fields, you can just totally get the Jew, the urban Jew, who is afraid of and is jealous of that person who belongs in the fields. It's such a... So I, I want to take issue with one thing you said, Jeremy. I don't think that Yaakov here is portrayed as a city person. He's portrayed as a shepherd. Right in the city, you don't live in a tent. You live in the house. And I think the fact that he's described as a, a tent dweller is important. And, you know, when you were reading the verse, I was struck... Elliot, that by Yigdalu Hanarim, the youths grew up, by Yu Esav Ish Said, and Esau came into his own as a man of the field, and Jacob came into his own as a man of the tents, meaning that they carved out their own identity, which I think complements what you were saying about Esau. It's also true of Yaakov, that Yaakov also may have been misunderstood as a youth and comes into his own as a Sishtam Ohalim and and I think what's interesting to me is that there is no city here. There's no city and I think I think no they're civilization. Both, they're both linking to to uh different kinds of archetypes, they're different kinds of of pasts. And and Jeremy, I think the point of of Ace of reaching back to a to a primitive past. I mean that that culture is still with us. By the way, there's plenty of people that 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 hunt, you know, in in the world, and plenty of people in this country, which is a highly civilized country, that do this recreationally. And I only urge the video, you know, our our, our listeners and viewers to kind of Google deer hunting in, on YouTube and and react to that it's it's i i i had to i I was doing that just to do a little research and because i don't hunt and i don't fish and and i find it all fascinating and horrifying at the same time and and that's precisely the point which is we do not come out of a culture that is hunting even back you know in the time of abram isaac and jacob there is no hunting there what they do is they raise sheep they kill sleep they eat meat 
but they certainly do not do that uh, by hunting. You know, and hunting really just, harkens it, back to a to an ancient, a primitive, a pre a prehistoric past. Basically. Is a, a fair question to ask? But by, by the way, I just uh, I've never hunted anything in my life, um, but and and of course have no no interest in doing that. But um, uh, I did have a, a, a good friend of mine in high school. One of my closest friends was was uh, he didn't count in the minion, and uh, and he was he and his brothers. They were big hunters, and they would. I very, very clearly remember um, the first Saturday in November. Uh, they would go off. Deer season would open. They would each get a deer. They would come back. The deers would drain on their porch. They would butcher them and eat them all winter. They would freeze them. And yeah. my friend Mark Mark Krebs, who lives in California now, used to say, "You know, this is there's nothing wrong with this. I haven't done anything wrong. In fact, it's a lot more natural to go out into the deer's environment, kill the deer." myself than to have he we didn't use the term factory farming back then but it's a lot more natural than buying something in the grocery store that's been wrapped in shrink wrap and factory farmed and i do think that that's probably correct that is correct uh, I, we, we we have a certain admiration for that you know there are people you know around camp Rama, by the way you know who who that what they will do is They'll, they'll they'll shoot a deer or uh, maybe two, and that will last them for for the entire winter. They'll freeze it, yeah. and they'll do that. And, and of course, you know the preservation and refrigeration didn't exist, uh, you know, in those days the way it is. And, and so that brings us back to the story. Yeah, the story. Just, just a real quick, just one thing about the the Torah. This is just a small halachic detail. You have to um, shecht a deer or an antelope. Also, yes. you can't kill it with a bow and arrow or a gun. Um, so you have to trap it, and as just as a halachic detail, those things are kosher. Yes. You know, you can have kosher deer, you can have kosher antelope. Uh, I think you can even have kosher giraffe, although God knows how you'd get nowhere to slice it on the neck. But you have to. There's, there's one important thing. First of all, you have to catch it, and the the rabbinic literature does talk about sad svi. Uh, you you trap the deer and then put it in the pen and then get to where you can check it. But the Torah. Um, first of all, assumes that you uh, can eat these things because back in Deuteronomy, then when it talks about um, eating non-sacrificial meat, it says you can eat it like like the deer or the ram, which is evidently something that people must have known what the hell that meant. Um, but the, the second thing is that a, a domesticated animal, a cow or sheep, you don't have to pour out the blood on the ground, but a or you do have to pour it out. But you don't have to cover it. The deer or the or the antelope or whatever you pour the blood into the ground and cover it back up in this ritual, which I don't exactly know what it means, but I think it means something like, you know, you have an extra obligation to sort of a return this animal to the wild. Oh, yeah, like that. I'll tell you something. You know, we Highland Park. We have a lot of deer here, so when you talk about shechting them, it's actually quite a real, a real issue here. I'm sure there are a lot of people here that would like to shecht the deer that are in this town, especially when they you know chew up your your tomatoes and your whatever in your backyard, as they do in mine. However, okay, which brings me to 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 Ace of coming in from the field uh he is coming back on a day i guess of hunting and um uh, it says comes back from the field and he's tired um so i'm i'm going to go out on a limb here and say he, he wasn't particularly successful that day or was he because he's famished he's tired he's 
He's full. Haliteni namina adoma adoma. Zay sees Jacob brewing up a, a lentil stew. He doesn't necessarily know at that point that it's lentil. He sees it's only red. He may think that it's a blood stew, um, and which is why he, you know, the Torah really gets us to understand that he he has this appetite for red things, which is blood. And of course, that's when uh, Jacob manipulates him. Um, just, you know, can you give me two seconds about that scene in your own mind or just what stands out for you in that in that scene, just either beginning, during or end of that? That's just a, it's a very powerful uh, scene. Barry, go ahead. It's a poignant story. And I think the word ayef conveys the poignancy in that it could be that he was not successful. But another way to read it is that he was too tired to eat the meat. In other words, the hunt itself had consumed all of his energy. So he comes back too tired to fix his own meal. And so he's relying on his brother and he sees, as you suggest, perhaps something that is reminiscent of the hunt, the red stew. And he wants that instead. Yeah. I I would say that uh, I think the story is tremendously rich because first of all, the Bible always picks a word or often picks a word that is you know, you, you could have used any word for cook. Vayazed Yaakov Nezid. It sounds to any Hebrew Hebrew reader like like lehazid mezid to do something intentionally devious, sneaky, rebellious. So Jacob, just from the sound of the word, a Hebrew reader would say Jacob's being sneaky. And Asa, but again, returning to that concept that I said before about the the, and I accept Barry's amendment about. He's, he can't be portrayed as a city person because it's an anachronistic story of, of, of shepherds. That's correct. But I do think that the story of, of um, masculinities, of macho man and gentleman, uh, is definitely at work here. And yes, Jacob is portrayed, in my opinion, as sneaky, nasty, not, not entirely nice. But Esau is portrayed as a big doofus because he's so he's so hungry he says, th- if I don't get lunch right now, I'm going to die. So what do I care about an inheritance? Um, this is about my satisfaction right this second, right this minute. I don't have any time to wait. And Jacob says, okay, then just trade me, you know, your inheritance rights. And he says, I, you know, that's fine. And um, so Jacob gives him the food. So he eats and he drinks and he gets up and he leaves thus then he scorns the birthright. This guy, in point of fact, Esau is not the guy to be Abraham's heir. Okay, Jacob is the guy to be Abraham's heir because he's thoughtful. And he's maybe thoughtful in a not so so flattering way, not so not so ethical way, but he's smart. And Esau might be strong, he might be attractive, and maybe Isaac, who who maybe still scarred from the Akedah and is not in my opinion, terribly much portrayed as a as a man of action, can have some you know special pull to Esav because he is such a man of action. But he's he scorns the birthright, and we, the children of Jacob, reading this story, know that this guy cannot be the leader of the people of Abraham. So you know that, and, and as a reader, and I think Rebecca knows that too, because because from the oracle. You know, 
because the oracle, because she loves Jacob more than she loves Jacob, and he loves Isaac, loves uh, Esav, and and remark about the blindness. The blindness is going to be a a, a motif that uh, occurs later on in the parsha. Isaac is blind, and and more than once you you know you've commented that it's not only physical blindness. Before we get to the blindness, I think uh, the, the first point I need to make is that I think we tend to sell Esau a little bit short in the same way that we sell Isaac short. I think what motivates Esau is the bracha, not the bachorah. I mean, let's face it, from all we know of Isaac, he's not going to leave all that much. That doesn't necessarily interest Esau. What he wants is his father's blessing, and he is entitled to that. The only time the birthright really becomes important is when he loses a blessing as well. Yes. And I think the other thing to remark about Esau is that he is very passionate and very, he feels in a way that we don't really get Jacob feeling until he runs into Rachel at the well, right? <laughs> Jacob is conniving here. Esau, when he, when he is able to get this little blessing from his father, burst into tears. It's, this is, this it's is exactly right. Shattering. It's emotionally this, shattering. This is exactly right, Barry. And I would say again, in my opinion, what the Torah is saying is that Esau is not smart enough to be conniving, and we, he may, he may, um, we may view him as particularly emotional and raw and honest and guileless. Jacob is all guile, Esau is guileless. And there's something that's, I think, makes him appealing um, and maybe makes Jacob feel a little oily. But I think this story is being told um, that, you know, every reader of this story is the child of Yaakov. So let's go back to, to Yitzhak for a second and, and talk about him. They have, there's this moment the scene now again in 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 with Avi Melech, and uh, it, following the typology of earlier stories where Abraham tries to uh, introduce his wife as his sister, Isaac does the same with Rebecca, and and we have an unusual twist here, which is and and here of course this is uh, R-rated, uh, or maybe not. Let's just let's get into the verse. So he says she's my sister, and Avi Melech. It says in verse 8 of chapter 26, Stay there a long time. Yamim, hayamim. The days were going. Avimelech was looking. The king of the Philistines was looking. He was looking out of his window or into their window. And behold, Isaac was playing Scrabble with Rebecca. Mitzachek. <laughs> no. Well, that's how you know that Scrabble is the oldest board game. <laughs> so, so A, what was he doing looking at the window? B, why was their window open? C, what does the word Mitzachek mean? D, I mean, you know, we can you give me some characterization of the marriage and you know thinking you see it as a a good marriage a bad marriage a, you know compare I've, I've said before i think that of the marriages of the patriarch this is probably the best one I'm, I'm i'm willing to revise that based on how we understand this this episode and other things but 
I'd like you guys to weigh on that. Barry, you want to go ahead? So the second part of the verse actually informs the, the first part. He sees Isaac misahaking with his wife. And the one thing Avimelech knows is that what Isaac is doing is not the way you behave with your sister. And that suggests that it's something overtly sexual, but I think the word itself suggests some kind of friendly frolic, that they're enjoying themselves. And um, this is what sets Avimelech on edge, because I think we're to understand in some way that the incest taboo is practically universal at this point. But is he, a, is, is he bored? Uh, Avimelech, is he a voyeur? Is he... You know, we know that Rebecca is a beautiful I think woman. It's happen- I, I would say that it's happenstance. He happens to look out at a time when Isaac is doing what he's doing with Rebecca. And there is a fair amount in the Torah that works. You know, it's the same in all literature, right? We're always surprised when something happens in a story, but the author wasn't surprised. You know, the author put it there. So I think it's a detail that drives the story. And, and and so what do you make of the marriage or Jeremy, I don't know, anywhere you want to kind of weigh in on, on, on this little episode and, and in terms of, you know, what, what's the, what characterizes its relationship and, and the, the, you know, being seen like this or any, any. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to go, I would agree with everything Barry just said. I think that that detail of they were there a long time. I mean, we, this, the Parsha starts off with the story of the, the fact that they've been married for 20 years before she has the children. Um, so they've been married a long time. And then she's already had the children. And the children have now grown up to sufficient to sufficient age that they can do the whole negotiations over their financial positions in the family. So they're not there. this is a, a, a not, you know, newlywed couple. And they're still taking delight like in each other. They're still they're still playing Scrabble, and and I think Yitzchak got a seven letter word on this one, and uh, <laughs> with a triple word score, and uh, and and I think that the I think I agree with Barry. I think that's that it's happenstance, and that's the sign- significance of the phrase Ki Archu Lo Sham Yamim. They were, they've been there a long time, and for the first couple of months, they could pull off the the sibling thing, but. They in the end of the day they can't keep their hands off each other because they're a loving couple okay. and they're and they're and the sexual or erotic quality of their marriage actually endures well past the point that it's about childhood having children. It's not about having children. They're just mitzacheking and and with Yitzhak in particular, the fact that Yitzhak's name is laughter and play that Yitzhak mitzachek he's being himself. So is there not perhaps a, a, another valence to this word? That is more like uh, violent, or, or um, uh, uh, you know, not the pleasure part of it, but maybe actually there's some something. So what I want to say is that here Isaac comes into his name, yeah. right? He gets the name Yitzchak because other people laughed, other people did the misahaking, as it were, but now he's doing it, so he has become Yitzchak. The one who laughs, not just the one who is laughed about. Yeah, I like that. All right, so talk about Yitzhak now as as a substantial character, and as you know, this is the only partial where we see him really as a full a full character, uh, as a as a kind of landlord, landowner, land, you know, farmer, shepherd, 
uh, a man of wealth. Uh, take that away, Jeremy. Go there on. you go. Go, Jeremy. So he's a force to be reckoned with in this parsha. You know, he's a, a leading figure in the neighborhood, so to speak. He's a, a politician. He's an engineer. And I think the one thing that is easy to lose sight of in this parsha, he's going to receive the divine blessing. Yeah. God's going to give him the, the the promise, renew the promise that he made to Abraham, which carries a lot more weight because he is Abraham's progeny, right? This is really the success of Abraham's covenant is that Isaac can now receive it. Jeremy, your reflections on Isaac in the in the in the in the the lineup of the patriarchs, matriarchs. Yeah, well, I'm I'm on the record as thinking that I, that Isaac is a reduced figure and and then mostly he is a transitional figure the rebecca is the one with the sharp eyes and the sense and he's i mean i find that the the story of his blindness um you know is is really significant in contrast perhaps you know to moshe who at the end of the Torah he says 120 years and he's still you know lo lo his eyes are still sharp isaac is blind his eyes his eyes have grown too dark to see and i think that's not just a um, you know a, an ocular description, but I think he doesn't get it, and so uh, so he needs the deception. I mean, I, I would say that the deception that, that that Rebecca and Jacob perpetrate on him is comes off as something like a necessary evil. Like if we don't if we don't uh, if we don't kind of manipulate the old man, something terrible is going to happen. Yeah, and. And so I th I think that um, that that's kind of what's going on here, and and Rebecca certainly sees it, and Yaakov at least plays along. Even if, even again, as Jeremiah though told us, he just he he's he he exploits and tricks and twists his poor brother, and you just can't feel, especially since especially since Asab is as Barry said such a heartfelt character. You know, do you have only one blessing? Hello at Salta Libracha. Didn't you didn't you hold back any blessings on my behalf? And he cries and screams, and your heart just breaks for the power of Asab as a as a vulnerable character. Well, that's how the parsha really really ends. It ends with this the horrible sense of brokenness, and 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 it's going to be symbolized by the 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 need for Jacob to break through a boundary he's gonna he has to he has to leave he's banished basically he's going to be sent out of the out of the household ostensibly to find a wife but really to save his life from his brother's ang 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 anger uh, the parsha ends with um a kind of attempt that asav makes to reconstitute his relationship with his parents because he has married canaanite women again in line with you know this the, the idea that he 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 aligns himself with the the Canaanites, but when the the, the last line of the parsha vayelech esav el Yishmael esav goes to Ishmael vayikach et machlat bat Yishmael ben Avraham achot nevayot he marries the daughter of Ishmael named Machlat, a relative, and that seems to to find you know to to at least pacify the parents. It's it's I think it's a fascinating. Uh, note to end on uh, because it says I want to try something. I think we have a lot of pathos for for Esav, um, and we're left hanging in suspense as to what will happen next week. 
So I would just add that this part of the story actually supports Jeremy's reading quite nicely because one of Isaac's glaring failures, which, of course, in human fashion, he blames others for, is that he did not provide wives for his children. There you go. Right. Yeah. The longest chapter in Breshid is Rivka being acquired for Isaac by Abraham or Abraham's agent. And Isaac has not performed this filial duty. And it's tragic because you can't really blame Asav for his wife choices. He's in the land of Canaan after all. And I don't think relations with Ishmael were great at the time. Maybe they weren't terrible, but you know, I think he did the best he could under the circumstances. And, you know, like a lot of other people, comes home with the wrong spouse. <laughs> he did the best he could under the circumstances, and so did we in this Parsha. <laughs> we, we tried our best to discuss this Parsha, and we, I think we did a good job. And we want to thank everyone for being with us. I, we're, we're always honored by your presence here and giving us the time. Uh, and studying with us and discussing this us and and you can see that we're left with so many more questions which we're going to obviously take up next week on the next edition of Parsha. We should, we should dedicate the, they should dedicate today's session to a happy birthday. Happy birthday Mary Chesler and Carol Chesler. Carol Chesler. Carol Chesler had a birthday. And it was in September. The celebration was Okay, and Mary Chesler had his birthday on Sunday. Monday. 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 Tov. Thank you very much. Okay, and we'll see you all next week on the next edition of Parsha Talk. Shabbat Shalom.